This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Good afternoon and welcome to Why Food. This week I'm here with Bill Brown, the founder of William Dean Artisanal Chocolates, located just south of Clearwater Beach in Florida State. Welcome to welcome to Brooklyn, first of all, and welcome to Heritage Radio, Bill. Well, thanks for having me. I, I enjoy being here. What are you in New York for? Uh, for a variety of things. Uh, the company that I work with the most, uh, Valrona, has got a headquarters here in Brooklyn. And uh, then we also visited the Fancy Food Store, which I store show which i'd never been to just to kind of get an experience of what it's like to see the largest basically food gathering in north america yeah it must provide an ample amount of creativity and inspiration for you it was crazy <laughs> yeah oh so you've already been to it i went to it on uh, monday and uh walked all day and still didn't get down every aisle so it was pretty amazing to see um there was more cheese there than i thought the world contained, but <laughs> it was interesting. Was there anything in particular that caught your eye? You know, I would see some, uh, there were some chocolate companies there, so it's nice to see. Um, I always like to kind of gauge how I think we stand based on what I see from other products and taste. And uh, so, you know, I, w- I went around looking for what was maybe a new trend. And, and, you know, fortunately, I guess for us, I didn't see anything that uh, really shocked me, but uh, some good products and some good chocolate and uh um, Valrona, the company I use, was there, so I visited their booth two or three times just to, to meet with some friends. Yeah, they're probably one of the most commonly chosen chocolate producers uh, in the world, right, for good, high-quality chocolate. You, you get the last part's the key. If you want good, high-quality, absolutely. They're one of the best chocolate companies. And there's others that are really good, too, but it's really they really focus on people who are trying to do the most they can with chocolate. So if you start with a great ingredient, that's the only way you're going to get to a great result. And so that's that's why we have always used them and a few others that uh, are another are, are also high quality producers. And you began with William Dean Chocolates as a chocolate store, but has has it evolved into something else now? Has it become more than that over the years? It yeah, it has its own mind, I think. So it we do primarily chocolate as well. Uh, that's our primary product, but. It's grown into a bigger space, and we do gelato every day, and we do pastries, we do afternoon teas, and that really came out of my wanting to give my employees full-time employment because chocolate's so seasonal, and I wanted to create an environment where they didn't have to worry about their jobs going away when the season slowed down. So it's worked out really well, and I, I, I'm proud of all the products we do, our, our macaroons as well, and um, so it has kind of seems to have its own mind a little bit. 
What led you to open up in where, where you did? Is that where you're from originally? No, I uh, actually in the 90s, I was a dot-commer. I moved to Atlanta. I was doing technology companies. And I still remember, you know, flying to Phoenix for lunch, then L.A. for dinner. And it was kind of a whirlwind experience for me. Sounds exciting. It was for a while. And then I was there when the bubble burst. And uh, we went from being in USA Today as a can't-miss company to a company looking for money to keep the doors open. And eventually, you know, we, we didn't find that. And at that point, I thought, I've done enough of startup businesses and experienced the highs and the lows. And so I moved to, to uh, the Tampa area to work for a large benefits company. And I uh, thought, I'm just going to play it safe. I, I actually liked my job. I got promoted five times in five years, which you're only allowed to get promoted once per year. So I was doing well. And then this chocolate bug hit me. Well, let's let's fill the gaps in on that now. Because how? So, you're, what, what were you? Where, where were you working specifically when you were working with that company for five years? They were they're in St. Petersburg, which is um, part of the Tampa Bay area, and the company was Ceridian Benefits. They're still there, and and um, you know my ending role was running the department that does Cobra Insurance. So when people lose their insurance because they leave a company or there's a divorce or something. This is the interim insurance that people would keep for 18 months. And uh, the nice thing was I always told my employees we were the good guys because we actually were trying to fix the problems people were encountering. So I didn't hate my job. So I feel pretty lucky that, you know, I did enjoy what I was doing. But uh, I saw a TV show and Alton Brown was making truffles. And I thought, I don't know why. I thought that looks interesting. I'd never done anything like that in my life. And honestly, as soon as I started playing with chocolate, it's just like things went off in my head and the creativity came back. And then I saw where people were actually airbrushing chocolates. And then it was like it went into a when you say whole the creative, specter. When you say the creativity came back, was was it subdued for a few years there in the jobs that you were doing? <laughs> it was. Uh, as a child, when I was in elementary school, um, and my t- teachers would learn later on, nothing was going to make me pay attention. I was very kind of an ADD child. And I was, I was bright enough that it would always frustrate them. But all I did was draw all day long, and they'd have me stay after school, and I would draw, and they'd put my drawings up in the school. And I remember that, so I must have been decent, but it got to the point where I wasn't paying attention. And so they took all the paper from my desk, and I only got paper when there was a quiz or a test. And I guess one day my parents got called to the school, and I was in the principal's office with the the principal, and I'm crying, and my teacher's crying, and I guess I'd brought back paper towels from the bathroom and was drawing on them, and that was just like the last straw for her. And it's kind of a funny story, but I never drew again. Really? They tried to get me to draw years later, and I would just get so nervous. Uh, The game Pictionary came out, and I would sweat playing that game because I was so nervous. So obviously the teacher had a not the uh, effect she desired, but it just really made me not want to to do that anymore. And so when this chocolate thing came out, for some reason, it just didn't have, I didn't feel nervous about sharing my creativity. It must have been an awakening for you. Yeah, it was. Exactly it was. So it was a situation where something that had been pretty dormant for years came back and it just, it really took over my life. And how did you... Because a lot of people, when they start to take up a new craft at home, it's a slow burner. It's a slow process in terms of lo- learning and trying to understand it. What helps you to kind of breeze through it so quickly? What, what did you start doing that allowed you to get to a level in such a short space of time that you could open up a store? 
I, I think a lot of it is just the passion. And then, like, as I said earlier, what frustrated my teachers was I could pick things up so quickly. But then, as friends would say, a squirrel, squirrel would run by or a shiny object would go by and I'd be distracted. But with the chocolate, I never got distracted. That's all my focus was on. So I, the first place I went was Google and uh, started Googling words I didn't understand, like temper chocolate. I had no idea what that meant. And I was lucky enough to fall into a uh, online community, eGullet. I don't know if you're familiar with them. And there was actually a guy here three weeks ago. He had a company called Q Drinks, and it was because of that community that his company became such a success. I can go back and look at my first post if I'm getting too big for my britches and realize how little I knew because I was posting what I thought were good answers and questions, and I, I was so far off base. But that community really kind of embraced my enthusiasm. And as luck would have it, right when I was interested, a thread was on there called Chocolates with That Showroom Finish, which was all about airbrushing. So I was kind of the right place at the right time. Um, actually, a, a chocolatier from Kansas City, Chris Elbow, who's become very famous, one of the best chocolatiers, I think, in the country. He said, if you're ever in Kansas City, stop by my shop. Well, I'm from Kansas City. I was going back the next week to see my dad, who was in failing health. And so I stopped by his shop. And um, I never saw him paint chocolates, but I just, it seemed like it kind of got the snowball rolling even more, his passion and his the way he did his work, which, you know, was he, he cut no corners. I mean, he did everything the right way. And so it really was helpful to get those kind of people along the way. And then you continue to immerse yourself in people who were highly skilled in terms of chocolatiers and pastry chefs mm -hmm. all around. What, what did they give you? What did they teach you that gave you that extra step? Well, I think a lot of it was um, most of the people that I have leaned upon are great craftsmen. They're not always great businessmen. They do things because they want to create the best product they can create. And that, so they don't, you know, there, there's a fine line, but you have to choose what you want to do. And, and I always wanted to make the best product. And there's been points along the way where I could have chose to go down a different path, save some money by using maybe a lesser chocolate or, you know, things like that. And we've never done that. We still use what I think's the best to work with. So I think I was lucky to work with those kind of people that were all about the quality of what you were producing, not necessarily the quantity. So essentially, they kind of instilled those real true values um, mm -hmm. of creating chocolate from the get-go. And it was like it was meant to be. I had signed up for a local class on chocolates. And then the, the woman that was teaching the class called me and said, why do you want to take this class? And I said, I'm being me. I didn't hide anything. I said, uh, um, I'm just really excited about this. I, I kind of want to start a business. And she said, well, I don't teach people who are going to be my competition, so you can't be in the class. And so I was a little crestfallen when that happened and thought, what am I going to do? So, of course, I went right back to Google and noticed that the, the Nodder School of Pastry Arts was in Orlando, which was about an hour and a half away. And so I signed up for that. Now, these were all professionals, so I felt very much out of my element. So when I first went there, Ewald Nodder, who's phenomenal, he's, he was the first pastry chef inducted into the Pastry Chef Hall of Fame. He talked to me for a little bit on the phone, and then he said, Bill, your passion is going to push you past some of these people. And the, and the first class, I didn't, have a, I didn't even know how to put a chef's jacket on, and I didn't have pants. And everybody there was an instructor, and we went to lunch, and I, you know, he said, how's it going? I said, I think I'm a little over my head. And he had heard my responses in class. He said, Bill, you're already ahead of almost everybody in this class. So his encouragement was really meaningful over the years, and it's, it's an ongoing relationship we have. So he's... 
he was somebody that came along at the right time, and I can't remember what the proverb was, but it said when the student's ready, the teacher appears, and I feel like he was he was there that for you. Person. That Had I taken, I should send a thank you letter to the lady who refused me because what she would have taught me would have been her best, but it would have been far less than what Awalt's capable of. And he also, his school would bring in the best people in the world, you know, um, very famous French chefs, Belgian. So I got exposed to some of these great chefs. And because I had a personal relationship with Awalt, he kind of also helped me to, you know, get to meet them on a personal level as well, which is, has really, I think, served me well. How soon did the passion for chocolate take over into something that was now going to become a business for you? Because I'm sure at the start, you were just making chocolate out of pure love. And then did you notice that this was something that you could maybe move into as a career? I think I knew internally I wanted it. Um, Thankfully, there's no pictures of my first creations because I wouldn't claim them, I'm sure. Uh, But I knew pretty quickly I had a department of about 170 employees. So I would just make stuff and take it in. And it got to the point when they were really wanting to try them, I knew that I was on the right track. So I knew pretty quickly, but I felt it was important to having been involved in three companies that went out of business in the technology field that um, I really wanted my parents to feel like I was on the right path. And that was a challenge because my mom was like, no, 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 you've been promoted five times, you need to stay on this track. And I went home to Kansas City, and we visited the local Dean in DeLuca, and I was trying to convince her it was a good opportunity, so I showed her the chocolate case, and she asked the, the, the woman behind the counter, how much are those? And she said, $60 a pound. And my mom's first reaction was, nobody's going to pay that. And uh, Emma, who was the girl behind the counter, said, well, we can't keep them in stock. And my mom, who was kind of the biggest adversary of me doing this, her immediate response was, well, his are better than that. And so they asked me to bring the chocolates, and I did. And then they said, we want to carry your chocolates in our Charlotte store. And so that's, that's when I knew, even though I had known almost from day one this is what I wanted to do, I really felt like I wanted to have my family and friends thinking it was a good idea for me to do it. And so when, that's, that was really probably the key moments when my mom blurted out like a mom that you know what I was doing was better than what somebody else was doing. And the store now has become an incredible success. You know, when you go onto your website, there's a huge list of accolades. One that stands out because you get compared to the best is that you were included in the top 11 best chocolatiers in 2015. What do you think you put it down to, to look back and reflect on the short period of time since you got into the business that allowed you and allowed your store to become so successful? I think it's staying true to our principal belief that or my principal belief that the quality is always going to be the most important thing. I watch other chocolatiers, and, and I know some that, you know, frankly, I would they're they're you know they have more experience and more skills probably than me. But I make the choice to use the best products. And the other thing that I've been told is I have a good palate, which you can't teach. So I put flavor combinations together that work. And you know, in chocolate, people are always looking for something a little bit different because we've all had you know, raspberry, there's basic flavors, which you still want. But we've been lucky in putting together some flavor combinations that maybe are a little bit different. And yet people like them. So um, that was, that was a surprise to me. We sent a box, they asked us to send box, a 10 piece box to New York, because they were tasting. And I pulled it straight out of the case, we never didn't cherry pick one bit. And then when I got, oh, probably two years later, I kept getting emails 
that we should buy the book because the the author really liked our chocolates. And I was thinking, this guy is really hard up to sell books. And so I bought it. And then I saw, you know, he gave us, we were one of 11 companies in the world that he gave a perfect score to. And because they're German, that wasn't enough. So we had six out of six cacao beans, but then he rated on a one to 100 scale every chocolate. And we ended up having the third highest overall rating in the world behind um, a, a, a chocolatier in Japan who I don't know, Patrick Roger out of Paris, who I think is awesome. And I probably shouldn't say this, but one notch ahead of Le Maison du Chocolat, which is considered the best. And, and I'm not saying we're better. It was in his opinion. But that means a lot when somebody who is so good at what they do appreciates what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. How old were you when you started this? I was old, uh, probably uh, 46. Wow. And so I, I was lucky because a lot of the famous chocolatiers I knew kind of gravitated to me because they're like, why are you leaving this high paying job to do this? And because, you know, I, I was successful and I just I felt like I needed to for for me. I mean, and so I think that opened the doors so that I became friends quickly with people because they're so used to a 21-year-old a person just out of pastry school saying, I'm going to have my own TV show, I'm going to have my own business, and they've not paid any dues. And I think so that sometimes creates a barrier somewhat between them and the this person who's worked for 20 years just to get where they're at. And then somebody comes up and says, oh, in a year, I'm going to have my own show. Do you think because of your knocks throughout the years, you kind of took it at a slower pace because you kind of had a, an instilled sense of humility to, to say, let's take it bit by bit and see how it goes? I'm very cautious. So, you know, when I was in the corporate world, I always one of my favorite sayings was you never get a chance, second chance to make first impressions. So I have turned down some opportunities because I thought, we don't want to jump at something and fail because you never get to kind of flip the script back to that. So we've turned down some great opportunities. We, we wouldn't have been successful because we weren't big enough. And so we're just now, after almost 10 years, getting to the point where I feel like our production can keep the product integrity and maybe take on some of these bigger opportunities. Yeah. What were some of the big ones that you turned down over the years? Well, we had a chance for a reality show. I won't say with who, but um, we were pretty much offered a reality show. And, um, you know, I I can make all the decisions for the company. There's some other owners, but I I own enough stock. I could do whatever I want. But they were really concerned about how it might portray us because drama is such a big thing. But you can just look at um, somebody who I really like is DC Cupcakes. And it made a huge difference, I think, in their business that they got a reality show that kind of portrayed them in a, what did portray them in a really nice light. And that product became huge. And so, I mean, that that may have been a horrible thing had we done it, but I think it would have been good. Um, There's some business opportunities we've had. We had a company in China that wanted us to supply seven uh, stores that they had. But I just didn't think we were ready to tackle international trade and you know we just don't know it yet so uh and then there's been a lot um we're still working with a it's a national restaurant brand that we're still talking to but when they first approached me and said they wanted to carry them in all their stores or all their restaurants i thought that's great and then i did the math i looked on their website and they have 300 restaurants and i realized that could mean that we have to make 15 to twenty thousand chocolates a day just for, and that's that's a lot to make for us and our so I kind of back that one off a little bit, but maybe in the future. But it's like, it's a wise move because a lot of people, especially nowadays, expand far too quickly and 
anticipate that they're going to grow at such a rapid pace and then it all falls down amongst them because they get squeezed too thin. A podcast that I listened to recently was on Five Guys, the owner of Five mm-hmm. Guys, and he spoke about how I think it was for 17 years they had five stores and I think it was in 2003 they did the first franchise and now they have something like over 1400. It's a different animal. But it was because over those 17 yeah. years they were able to you know, get everything down to scale and knew exactly how the whole company operated. They knew who they were. And we took some chances. So in my second year, I approached Tivana, the tea company. Um, I had just made some chocolates with their teas, and I thought they were really good. And then I thought, oh, this would be a great opportunity. So I called them, and I got through and said, hey, I've made some great chocolates using your tea. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, we like chocolate. We like like tea, but not together. And so they weren't interested. I said, well, I'm going to be in Atlanta next week if, if I can just drop off the chocolates. And they said, sure. And so I drove specifically up to Atlanta just to drop <laughs> off the chocolates, seven hours. Uh, and I went to the receptionist, and I didn't even get a chance to meet anybody. But I was talking to her and gave her samples and all that. And uh, then I left, and um, I got a call within five minutes, and it was the owner. And she said, uh, she goes, you know, we really like your chocolates. We want to do something with you. And she said, you know, the only reason I, you got this is because I heard you talking to the receptionist who wasn't going to be able to do anything for you. And yet you were so passionate and kind to her. It made me come up to see what you had brought in. And so we, for two years, we did chocolates for the second year, we did 150 stores. And so we learned a lot about how to do mass production, how to ship. And, uh, you know, that was a challenge because they don't have cases that refrigerate the chocolate and our chocolates need that so we kind of kind of uh parted ways a little bit because i don't think our product was suited for their environment um and they wanted us to do something with a long shelf life but i haven't done that yet so talking about flavor pairings and what you did with the tea we've seen a few years ago everything was salt and sweet um then there was spicy and sweet which is still around i saw that you were doing stuff with beer and chocolate which seems to be we do uh we have a local brewery that uh, approached me and wanted to work together on a project and uh so and i'm not a real beer drinker so i I told them that up front i'm sure your beer is excellent but i i'm not going to be the one that can tell you so we started playing around with all their different beers and you know some things came out really good our macaroons so we do a uh kind of a reduced beer buttercream it's really good there's a caramel we've made and it's just taking the notes i mean you don't want it to be overpowering because then it's you know when people put a caramel in their mouth before it hits their mouth they already have an expectation that it's going to be sweet and you know if it's too bitter their first reaction is this isn't good so we tried to find the right beer which i think we finally have that you get a little bit of the hops flavor and a little bit of the it's, it's a nice flavor to it but the caramel still runs all the way through when you're when you're eating it so you know you're eating a caramel but it's got these unusual notes that if you're a beer drinker you're going to pick up right away right and are there are there any other flavor pairings that you see coming or that you're playing around with at the moment that stand out to you there's um you know it's you know i always tell my staff we cook for customers not for chefs so in the chef environment there's trends that have been around for a couple years that haven't quite spilled over into you know the mass uh, medias and uh, you know so one is there's some Japanese flavors that I really like um, I don't know if you're familiar with yuzu yeah so I love yuzu and the advantage of being in Florida is sometimes you have to trick people to make them try something so I tell them it's a little bit like kumquat because they have kumquat festivals all over Florida and they're used to that kind of sour bitter flavor and then they like it um, they but um, you know it's 
I've seen a lot of Asian flavors coming through, lemongrass. Um, when I first tried lemongrass, my customers would not eat it. They said it's it's too exotic. I'd had, uh, it had been a Thai restaurant. I had some Tom Kakai soup, which I love, which is coconut milk and lemongrass and some other things. And so I tried to make it into a chocolate. And I did. And it's still there. It's, it's good. And I called it lemongrass and coconut. And they would not eat it. And they're saying, you know, it's just too exotic. So I flipped the name to coconut and lemongrass. No problem. They eat it like crazy now. <laughs> so it's kind of fun to educate people on the new things. Um, you know, it's, it's tough, though, because salt... Bacon had its day. Salt had its day. Um, I've seen a lot of olive oil recently in ganaches, which is interesting. Um, it's not something I've, I've experimented with, but, um, you know, I, there's a new thing that's coming out that I'm excited with with Valrona. It's called double fermentation. So when you make chocolate originally, you take the, the pod, you cut it open, and you've got this kind of these seeds that are kind of covering a milky substance, and they're usually put between banana leaves for three to five d- days and ferment. And then in the fermentation process now, Valrona's pouring passion fruit juice on top of those beans. And so as they ferment further, they pick up that natural flavor of the passion fruit. And they also do it with banana. And so I've gotten some chocolate from them that tastes like dark chocolate. And then about halfway through, the passion fruit kicks in. And what's exciting for me as a producer is it's a chocolate that can be good for six months to a year. Because it's not, most of our chocolates are made without, they're all made without preservatives, but, you know, they're three to four weeks shelf life, you know, typically. Most bonbons you get at any store, if they're in a case, that's probably what they're going to be, and then the flavor starts to dissipate. But this particular process, which Valrona's the only one doing it, brings this unique flavor and you can create, you know, I'm already thinking of how I can use it to create new things, but it'll also let people have it for a longer period of time before they have to eat it because that's always the biggest concern from people is, you know, do I need to frid- refrigerate them? How long can I have them? And so it'll be interesting to see what can come from this. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. 
Tune in every Wednesday at 6 p.m. to hear some of the best people in wine tell you about what's going on in the world of wine. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate. Right. Welcome back to Why Food. With Valrhona as a French producer, now for me, and I know they, these are like two worlds apart when you compare what you get in a store compared mm-hmm. to what you get, you know, an artisanal chocolate producers like what you do. For me, when I, I, I don't eat chocolate from stores in America anymore because the quality of it is, is quite nasty compared to what you get in Europe. It's much creamier out there. Mm-hmm. So you can see that there's a difference in terms of how it's produced, you know, based on laws and, and, mm. and different uh, different reasons for agriculture. Is there a difference in styles or techniques between how artisanal chocolates are generally produced in the USA compared to Europe? Oh, absolutely. As I said earlier, Europe is a quality-based environment when it comes to food. The U.S. is a quantity-based environment. So if you go to McDonald's, instead of lowering the price and giving – or keeping the price the same and giving – I'm sorry, I shouldn't say – any of the, let's say this way, any of the large companies, instead of um, creating something better and charging more, they believe give you more and charge less or keep the price the same. And so we have these ridiculous sizes of food because that, that way they can skip the quality and they're giving you a lot. Whereas you go to Europe and like you said, you're right. When you go and just buy, I'm sure you love Cad. Is it Cadbury? Yeah, that's all. That's all I'm thinking about. <laughs> what I'm telling you, though. <laughs> and when you go there, they're producing it differently than they would pr- produce the same product here in the U.S. And it's more quality based. And I'm sure there's other elements to it. But the other thing is, once somebody's had good chocolate, for example, they don't really accept something less. So as much as we love chocolate in the U.S., we're way behind the European com- uh, countries. So. I think in the U.S. it's like the average American has like 11 pounds of chocolate a year, which is a lot. Um, But I think Switzerland is 22 pounds. Yeah. Well, they've got the good stuff. Yeah. And so that's what they're used to. And then if they brought in the other stuff, um, it just wouldn't work. So it'll be interesting because I see that change in our culture now in all foods. You know, you look at Whole Foods and all the other places that are coming in and they've really brought an awareness to, you know, quality is really the way to go. And I think that's going to happen with the chocolate as well. There'll always be a place, though, for, you know, you've got children who three, four years old, they don't care as much. But if somebody wants to really enjoy chocolate, it's a different experience when you get something that's very unique and has been processed from the best cacao beans. Um, You know, to me, the nuances you just don't get in these mass market chocolates. Absolutely. Now, let's touch back on your experience. Okay. Just before we leave today, I just want to ask you what the chocolate industry has given you. Well, it's given me a new life. So I have to say, no matter what happens, um, you know, I've been very well treated. And, you know, I've been so fortunate to I really don't have any negatives that have come my way from this. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate to um, I think I think my passion kind of leads the way and it kind of opens the doors. But, you know, I've um, learned a lot, and what's really kind of struck me is, as a novice kind of going in, kind of the home cook going in, um, you know, I was surprised how much I was embraced, even though I wasn't a classically trained pastry chef, so that when I had an idea, they would listen. And what they have done is, 
you know, I've had people say in the, that are very well respected. I bring something to the chocolate world that they don't have, which is in some ways the creativity. Because a classically trained pastry chef, one of the things they learn are the boundaries of what they can do. Somebody who ha- doesn't have that training has no idea what the boundaries are. So you come in and you do different things that they would never do because they've been told you don't do that. And sometimes that works. Um, I'll say a lot of times it doesn't work, but sometimes it does work. So I I did something with butternut squash, coconut, and curry because I had soup that tasted good. And my chocolatier friends were rolling their eyes at me like, why would you ever use butternut squash in a chocolate? And I'm like, isn't it the same as a pumpkin, which we use all the time? And it is. And they just, in their minds, accepted pumpkin, but thought other things were something you wouldn't use. So for me, what I've gained the most, I think, from the chocolate world is an acceptance that I belong in it. And I just, I'm very proud to be a chocolatier. And um, especially the people I've met, you know, I'm, you know, some of my best friends are the people I've met in the last 10 years from chocolate. And I I feel very humble that these and these are the, some of them are icons, and yet they, they they call me a friend, and it's it's amazing. Great, thank you so much, Bill. If people want to get your chocolates because you're based in Florida, they can still get some in New York, right? So if they want to get it online, they can online's find- probably the best. We ship all over the U.S. all year long. And- so WilliamDeanChocolates.com. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the Instagram, if you want to find some beautiful pictures of chocolate, it's at WD Chocolates. And then if you're ever in the Clearwater area, you're just south of that in Bel Air Bluffs, mm-hmm. right? Come by for some gelato, some chocolates, and tell me, say you heard us on the radio, and I'll come out and give you a little tour. All right. Nice one. Thanks very much, Bill. Thanks very much for coming here to visit us today at Heritage Radio. Right, thanks so much thanks for having Lauren me. for putting it together. And I want to extend my thanks to Heritage Radio Network for providing a platform for conversation across all matters involving food and drink. If you want to listen to more podcasts from this station, please visit heritageradionetwork.org. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe to the show. That small action has a huge reaction for the show's popularity. And thank you for for listening to today's show. If you ever want to get in touch, please email me at whitefood at heritageradionetwork.org to share your story. Or you can find me on Instagram at whitefoodpodcast. Until next week. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.